Hello and welcome to 2023 January Fellow Choice Podcast, where we will outline the highlights of January issue of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. I'm Andrea Rosati from Fondazione Policlinico Universitario Agostino Gemelli, IRX in Rome, Italy. And I'm Anissa Mburu from Aga Khan Hospital in Mombasa, Kenya. Lauren Shore Prescott and colleagues performed an ancillary analysis of the RTC55971 phase 3 trial with the primary objective to investigate whether perioperative blood transfusion negatively impacted progression-free survival, overall survival and quality of life in patients with advanced ovarian cancer. Of the 612 patients with adequate data, 323, 53% received the transfusion, while 289 were allocated in the no transfusion group. The transfusion cohort was more likely to have better WHO performance status and higher rate of serious histology, primary debulking surgery, aggressive surgery, and no gross residual disease. Median overall survival was 34 versus 35.2 months in a no transfusion and transfusion cohort with a not significant adjust hazard ratio for death of 1.18 in favor of transfusion cohort. Median progression-free survival was 13.6 versus 12.6 months in the no transfusion and transfusion cohorts with a not significant adjust hazard ratio for progression of 1.14. Furthermore, no significant differences in global quality of life, fatigue, dyspnea, or physical functioning were found between the two groups at baseline or at any of the four assessment times. Interestingly, Grade 3 and 4 surgical site infections were more common in the transfusion cohort. The authors concluded that transfusion did not negatively impact progression-free survival or overall survival, however, it was associated with increased perioperative morbidity without improvements in quality of life. This very interesting study from Deepa Maheshwari and colleagues in Italy looks at the Mayo triage algorithm that identifies patients at high risk of morbidity slash mortality after cytoreductive surgery. Complex cytoreductive surgery results in post-operative morbidity and can even result in death. Thus, the decision to offer surgery for advanced ovarian cancer must be based on individual patient and disease factors known to be predictors of poor postoperative outcomes. The patient was classified as high risk if at least one of the three criteria were met. The criteria used to select patients at high risk for morbidity slash mortality include albumin levels of less than 3.5 grams per deciliter, age of 80 years and above, or for patients aged 75 to 79 years, at least one of the following factors. That is, an equal performance status of more than one, which is equivalent to the ASA score of three to four, stage four disease, or if complex surgery is likely. A patient was triage appropriate if none of the high-risk criteria were met. 625 patients with stage 3C slash 
four ovarian cancer who underwent primary or interval debulking surgery of intermediate or high complexity were included. The primary outcomes of interest for comparison between the high-risk and triage-appropriate groups were the presence of 30-day postoperative accordion-grade 3-plus complications, including death less than 30 days, and 90-day mortality following surgery. The Mayo algorithm identified a high-risk subgroup of women who were at a threefold increased risk of 90-day mortality after cytoreductive surgery. High-risk women were also more likely to die within 90 days following a severe complication. This, this study was therefore able to validate the Mayo triage algorithm in an international high-complexity surgical setting. The RAINBOW, Refining Adjuvant Treatment in Endometrial Cancer Based on Molecular Features Research Consortium, presented the RAINBOW Clinical Trial Program, which is a platform of four international clinical trials and an overarching research program. The randomized Phase 3 P53 abnormal rate trial will include 547 patients with invasive stage 1 to 3 P53 abnormal endometrial cancer, comparing adjuvant chemoradiation followed by olaparib for two years with adjuvant chemoradiation alone. The randomized phase 3 mismatch repair deficient green trial will include 316 patients with stage 2 lymphovascular space invasion or stage 3 mismatch repair deficient endometrial cancer comparing adjuvant radiotherapy with concurrent and adjuvant durvalumab for one year to radiotherapy alone. The randomized phase 3 non-specific molecular profile orange trial is a treatment de-escalation trial enrolling 600 patients with estrogen receptor positive stage 2 lymphovascular space invasion or stage 3 non-specific molecular profile endometrial cancer and will compare radiotherapy followed by progestin for two years to adjuvant chemoradiation. The polymute blue trial is a phase 2 trial that will enroll 145 patients, 124 lower risk disease and approximately 25 for higher risk disease with stage 1 to 3 polymutated endometrial cancer investigating the safety of adjuvant de-escalation therapy, namely no adjuvant therapy for lower risk disease and no adjuvant therapy or radiotherapy alone for higher risk disease. The overarching rainbow program will combine data and tumor material of all participants around 1,600 to perform translational research and evaluate molecular-based adjuvant therapy in terms of efficacy, toxicity, quality of life and cost utility. The primary endpoints are recurrence-free survival at 3 years in the P53 abnormal red, mismatch repair deficient green and non-specific molecular profile orange trial, while pelvic recurrence at 3 years in the polymute blue trials, and results are expected beginning in 2028. Godfrey and colleagues from France did a retrospective study looking at the efficiency of administering consolidation chemotherapy after six cycles 
of neoadjuvant chemotherapy and delayed complete surgery on overall survival and progression-free survival among patients with advanced epithelial ovarian cancer. The authors highlight the controversies of treatment of advanced epithelial ovarian cancer, particularly number of neoadjuvant chemotherapy cycles before surgery and utility of consolidation therapy after delayed surgery. For this study, delayed surgery was defined as surgery after six cycles of chemotherapy. They had 101 patients who received neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by delayed surgery. 42 patients who did not receive consolidation therapy were placed in group one, and group two had 59 patients who received consolidation with or without bevacizumab. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival, while the secondary endpoint was overall survival, both calculated from the date of delayed complete surgery to the date of fast recurrence or last follow-up and date of death or last follow-up, respectively. The median follow-up was 78 months, while the median progression-free survival was 10.2 months for Group 1 and 10.4 months for Group 2. Median survival was 31.7 months for Group 1 and 38.3 months for Group 2. The authors concluded that consolidation therapy following neoadjuvant chemotherapy and delayed complete surgery did not have a survival benefit. They further recommend prospective randomized trials to standardize the number of cycles of chemotherapy used. Yukio Suzuki and colleagues from Columbia University presented a large retrospective study on the prescription and use of hormone replacement therapy among cervical cancer patients with treatment-induced premature menopause. Across the market scan databases, they identified a total of 1,826 patients who experienced loss of ovarian function during primary treatment for cervical cancer, specifically due to upfront surgery in 19.3% of cases and to upfront radiotherapy in 80.7% of cases. The results show that despite the recommendation of different societies, stating minimally safety concerns and potentially significant benefits of HRT in cervical cancer survivors, only the 39% of patients benefit from it, and for a significantly shorter period of time than the recommended by clinical guidelines. Median duration of HRT of 60 days. Additionally, patients in the radiotherapy group were 32% less likely to receive HRT than patients who underwent primary surgery. Concluding, HRT was found to be underutilized among premenopausal cervical cancer patients despite clinical guidelines supporting its short and long-term health benefit as well as safety. Among cervical cancer patients under the age of 50, HRT should be routinely discussed and offered until the age of expected natural menopause in absence of known risk factor or contraindications. 
Lalinde and colleagues from Bogota, Colombia conducted a cross-sectional study on the quality of life of patients undergoing minimally invasive surgery for gynecological malignancies using the FACT G quality of life scale with the physical, social, emotional and functional status being the four main aspects valued. They evaluated 158 patients during in-person medical consultations over time. For the physical components, a lower Shelson index and a higher social economic status had a positive impact on the quality of life. However, the authors found that the type of surgery, having a partner, type of cancer, BMI, length of hospital stay, and presenting complaints had no impact on the quality of life. A higher social economic status and presence of a partner increased the quality of life index in the social component, while the type of surgery, hospital stay, and presenting complaint had no impact. Interestingly, none of these factors assessed had any impact on the emotional component, while the functional components, a higher social economic status, highly impacted the quality of life index. Importantly, the type of procedure or whether it was ambulatory or not had no bearing on the quality of life, which is contrary to some studies where there has been an initial drop in the physical aspect. The authors proposed that this could be due to the possibility that just receiving treatment for cancer can generate a positive effect in the patient, affecting the perception of quality of life. The authors concluded that a lower Charlson index having a partner or having a higher socioeconomic status have a positive impact on quality of life of patients undergoing minimally invasive surgery. They further recommend that the social environment should be taken into account as it has an important bearing on the quality of life of patients going for surgery. Aviat Cohen and colleagues from Israel presented a retrospective core study aiming to compare the incidence of endometrial carcinoma in patients with a pre-surgical diagnosis of endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia confined to the endometrium INE, versus patients with endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia confined to a polyp IMP. From January 2014 to December 2020, 88 patients were included in the study. Of those, 50 were diagnosed with INP and 38 with INE. Patients in the INE group were significantly more symptomatic, presenting with abnormal uterine bleeding in the 89% of cases, whereas 46% in the INP group were asymptomatic. Moreover, Pathology results revealed a statistically significant lower rate of concurrent endometrial carcinoma in the INP group, 26%, with respect to the INE group, 47%. The multivariable model confirmed that endometrial cancer was significantly less common in the INP group. Interestingly, a significantly higher proportion of grade 1 cancer was registered in the INP group, 84%, compared with the 50% in the INE group. The authors concluded that although concurrent endometrial cancer is less frequent within the INP group, its high incidence in both cohorts 
supports the current advice to perform hysterectomy in postmenopausal women. Finally, the benefit of lymph node assessment is not supported in completely resected INP patient and still needs to be determined in the INE group. Angelis and colleagues did a retrospective multicenter study to evaluate the association between timing of cytoreductive surgery and pattern of presentation of the fast recurrence in patients with advanced ovarian cancer. They also looked at the impact of the pattern of recurrence on post-relapse overall survival according to surgical timing. Out of 549 patients who qualified for the study, 175 underwent primary surgery, 224 received early interval debulking, while 150 had delayed debulking surgery. Peritoneal recurrence was observed to be higher in the first two years with increasing number of new adjuvant chemotherapy. Pleural or pulmonary recurrence was higher after early interval surgery. Lymph node recurrences were associated with a longer post-relapse overall survival. However, in women who had delayed surgery, lymphatic recurrence had no survival benefit. The authors found that a shorter time to fast relapse and delayed debulking surgery was significantly associated with decreased overall survival after relapse. This led them to recommend that there are more prospective studies that should be done to confirm the impact on oncological outcome of the pattern of the fast recurrence in ovarian cancer patients. In this meeting summary, Martina Angeles and other International Journal of Gynecological Cancer editorial fellows reported on eight interviews that were conducted during the 23rd Congress on Gynecological Oncology held in Berlin in October 2022. Professor Christina Fotopoulou was asked about the new ESGO-ESTRO-COP guidelines on vaginal cancer, stating that pelvic lymphadenectomy should be performed for tumor located in the upper two-thirds of the vagina, the inguinofemoral lymphadenectomy is recommended for tumors of the lower third, while the role of sentinel lymph nodes still needs to be determined. A fertility sparing treatment can be considered only if free margins can be obtained while trying to avoid vaginal stenosis. Professor Sven Machner reported the results of Groin's 5-1 study on vulvar cancer showing that omission of inguinofemoral lymphadenectomy is safe in patients with non-suspicious groin nodes, unifocal disease and less than 4 cm tumor, with a groin recurrence rate after sentinel lymph nodes of only 2.3%. In case of sentinel lymph node micrometastasis, inguinofemoral radiotherapy represents a safe alternative to lymphadenectomy with less treatment-related morbidity, while it is not recommended for patients with sentinel lymph node macrometastasis, Groin's 5-2 study. Professor Murat Gültekin stressed the relevance of HPV vaccination as the way to resolve the cervical cancer issue worldwide. With a single dose of HPV vaccine, potentially representing an option for low-income countries. 
Professor David Sibula gave an update on 2022 ESGO-ESTRO-ESP cervical cancer guidelines, where minimally invasive surgery is considered as an acceptable approach only for lymph node assessment and if negative at the frozen section then conversion to standard open surgery to complete the radical hysterectomy is needed. The Guidelines Committee also opened a window to minimally invasive surgery only in low-risk tumor, high-volume ESGO-accredited centers after protective vaginal maneuvers and comprehensive counseling with patients on current evidence. Finally, great caution must be used in de-escalation therapy waiting for the results of the Cervantes and SHAPE trials respectively in the intermediate and low-risk disease, while he strongly believes in the sentinel lymph node concept in view of the results of the Sentic study. Professor Alexandros Rodolakis stated that young patients with grade 1 endometrioid stage 1 endometrial cancer without myometrial invasion represents the definitive vindication for fertility-sparing treatment. After the evaluation of patient's reproductive potential, a treatment with oral progestin, intrauterine device or a combination of both is offered. Nevertheless, it is crucial to counsel this patient regarding the 40% recurrence rate. Therefore, pregnancy should be planned as soon as possible. Professor LaRusso stated that ideally all endometrial cancer patients should undergo a complete molecular analysis, including poly. However, in low resource settings, the poly test could be limited to high to intermediate and high risk patient, where this information could lead to an adjuvant treatment de-escalation. In the near future, results from Rainbow and other several ongoing trials will provide us the knowledge to define the role of immunotherapy in first-line settings and also molecular classification will probably impact the radicality of surgery. Professor Mansoor Raza Mirza highlighted the need to understand why PARP inhibitor can be effective in the biomarker-negative ovarian cancer population, recommending their use in first-line maintenance therapy until a more sensitive HRD test will be available. Concerning the role of immunotherapy and the negative results presented to date, both treatment mechanism and patient selection need to be further investigated. Professor Lederman stated that BRCA-mutated patients have the greatest benefit from PARP inhibitor maintenance therapy. Similarly, HRD-positive patients may benefit from the combination of olaparib and bevacizumab or from niraparib monotherapy, while in HRD-negative population, the clinical benefit from niraparib maintenance therapy is still unclear. Concerning low-grade ovarian cancer, an ongoing clinical trial is evaluating whether letrozole alone is non-inferior to letrozole plus chemotherapy in stage 2-4 disease, while another important study has shown that trametinib improved progression-free survival compared with physician choice. Professor Anna Fagotti discussed the surgical aspect of the updated ESMO-ESGO-ESP guidelines on ovarian cancer. 
BRCA mutated patient diagnosed with stick after prophylactic surgery have a 30% risk of developing peritoneal carcinomatosis over 10 years. Therefore, minimally invasive peritoneal biopsies are recommended. Hysterectomy in BRCA mutated patient should be considered in order to decrease the risk of uterine serous carcinoma. Moreover, secondary cytoreductive surgery followed by adjuvant chemotherapy offers an improved survival compared with chemotherapy alone, both in desktop 3 trial and SOC1 trial. However, the main issue is still to define which patient should undergo this surgery. Currently, it is recommended in platinum-sensitive recurrence, particularly in oligometastatic disease, which occur more often since the introduction of PARP inhibitor maintenance therapy. In these settings, patients should be treated with surgery or chemotherapy to clear the PARP inhibitor-resistant clones and reintroduce maintenance therapy with PARP. Thank you for listening to January's Fellows' Choice podcast. We hope that you tune in again in February.